Hey, we're in a series through Romans. If you're here for the first time today, we're in uh, Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Um, let's see, it's the uh, sixth book of the uh, New Testament, and we're in chapter 15. We are uh, coming now to the third message in a little three-part mini-series within Paul's letter to the Romans that spans chapters 14 and the first part of chapter 15, and I've titled it simply Matters of Conscience. And just by way of review and reminder, message one was in Romans 14, 1 through 13, where Paul opened Romans, op- opened the chapter with the command, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Now the weak in faith we discovered are those whose consciences are um, because of the traditions ingrained in them before they came to faith in Christ, their consciences will not allow them to do certain things. And the things that Paul points to as his primary and prominent examples of matters of conscience, what Paul in verse 1 called opinions, some translations call it disputable matters, are the questions of eating meat and the observance of special days. And if you remember what I said about the eating of meat is that there were converts coming into the church, weren't there, who were, who were Jews. In fact, predominantly the early church was Jewish. And as they came to faith in Christ, uh, questions of freedom, even as Gentiles are now coming into the church, questions of freedom with regard to diet came into view because, as we know, the Jews had strict dietary guidelines. And so as they came to Christ, uh, these Jewish believers would... Their consciences were conflicted about eating meat. Why? Because oftentimes when they went to the meat market, uh, what they encountered was meat that uh, either, number one, had been uh, had, had not been slaughtered and butchered according to Jewish regulations. Uh, the meat wasn't kosher. And so they didn't know if they could eat it. And secondly, a lot of times that meat that was sold in the markets had been previously offered to idols. And so when it was removed from the altar of a a pagan god, then it was brought to the market to sell. And uh, so Jewish people might say, well, am I entering in by eating this meat? Am I entering in, you know, tacitly entering into uh, participation in the worship of idols? Um. Yeah, and so that was an issue. Am I funding the the pagan temples by buying this meat? Yeah, and so they struggled. And and I, I read this week another writer that um, and who who shared a thought that I hadn't ever thunk before, which was that even the pagan uh, pagans who were coming into the church because of their background struggled with the question of eating meat that had been offered to idols. Uh, Paul really develops that more in his in his letter to the church in Corinth, but um, there it is. And so, so they struggled. And then the, the other issue was the observance of special days, and uh, you know, so now the, the the church is predominantly Jewish. Gentiles are flowing in, trusting in Christ. Are we still going to keep the festivals? Are we still going to keep the feasts? Uh, well, maybe not all of them. <laughs> Should we worship on Saturday, which is the Sabbath, or Sunday, which is the Resurrection Day? So all those things were live issues in the early church, and people were were struggling with 
what it now means to follow Jesus as it applied to those kinds of matters. Those weren't the only things, I'm sure, but those were some of them. And, and, and certainly even in those days, and I talked last week about the issue of today of alcohol and some of those things that Christians differ on. Um, and, 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 and drinking alcohol back even in that day, drinking wine for some people in the first century church was an issue of conscience. So Paul says, welcome the weak into your heart, into your life, not just into your church, but into your life. Love them. Welcome them. Don't quarrel with them. Don't, don't work them over because of their conscience. Don't pass judgment on them. Don't reject them. But he also issues a warning there to those believers who might fit the definition of being weak in conscience. And he says to them that, that everyone should be fully persuaded, meaning that you, you need to study this, you need to look at God's word, you need to, whatever your convictions are, come to full conviction. Be fully persuaded of the things that you're going to take a stand on, which will require that you look into God's word on these matters. Second message was in Romans 14, latter part of 14, verses 13 to 23. And Paul there issues a warning to the strong in those verses. Again, telling them not to pass judgment, judgment on the weak, neither to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in their way, by, which by definition would mean that they provided both the occasion and the motivation to violate their conscience. And, and in the violation of their conscience to sin. Paul said, whatever doesn't come from a clear conscience is sin. So he says, respect the weak. Protect their consciences. Don't interfere with the work that God has begun and is doing and will surely complete in their lives. So, as I've said, we come to the third installment in this three-part series on matters of conscience. Today we're in Romans 15, 1 to 13, and let's stand and read it together. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let us, each of us, please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the people extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, 
In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. This is God's word. You may be seated. There are two basic commands or exhortations that I think that kind of form the hooks on which Paul hangs his teaching in this passage. They're found in verses 2 and 5. The first has to do with pleasing your neighbor and not yourself. The second has to do with living in harmony with each other. So let's begin with that first one. Please your neighbor, not yourself. Please your neighbor and not yourself. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Well, what does it mean to please your neighbor? And doesn't the Bible warn against that? Uh, check out what Paul wrote to the believers in Galatia. Chapter 1, verse 10 of Galatians. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man... I would not be a servant of Christ. And of course, the same person wrote both of these, uh, the letter to the church in Rome, the letter to the church in Galatia. Scripture commands, through Paul in this case, neighbor-pleasing. It goes back to loving your neighbor as yourself. But Scripture also condemns (laughs) men-pleasing. And we must not confuse them with each other. So what's the difference. Uh, here in Galatians 1.10, Paul speaks of pleasing men kind of in a pejorative sense. It implies flattering people, or in my vocabulary, kissing up, you know, in order to gain their approval, to gain their favor, to get something from them. And it, it usually involves some moral or ethical compromise in the process. It, it's always incompatible with integrity and sincerity, uh, and even honesty. To, to please, your, please your neighbor, on the other hand, as Paul is talking about here in Romans 15, and in this case the neighbor is the brother or sister who has a weak conscience, Paul says includes two obligations. And the first is to bear with their failings, and the second is to build them up. So in verse 1, bear with his failings. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. This word bear with means to pick up or carry, uh, to take on yourself the burden. And it means much more than, you know, tolerance of the weak, kind of rolling your eyeballs and enduring them, putting up with them. Means far more than that. There's, there's the underlying, underlying realization here that in the church in general, the church at large, and each local church in particular, there are believers who span the spectrum from weakness to strength. It's true, isn't it? The weak are not lesser members of the family, and the strong are not greater members of the family. Uh, In a healthy family, which is what the Apostle Paul 
envisioned the churches being, wanted them to be, the stronger members carry the burdens of the weaker members. It's an obligation that comes from the requirement of love and the fact of being related to one another. Remember that the weak that he's describing here are not people who are weak-willed or weak of mind. They're weak in the sense that they have issues of conscience that they still haven't resolved, that can trip them up, can get in their way. Paul says, bear with that. Take it up. Carry it. You who are strong, carry the weak. That's kind of the thought here. And then the second thing he says is, build him up. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Verse 2. You've heard the word edifice, which means a building, a structure, right? Oftentimes in, in, in various translations, this, this phrase, build him up, is translated edify him. Edification is a constructive alternative to demolition. If you want to see how that is true, come on over to the church building someday. Something's had to be demolished, but a whole lot more just got rebuilt. Got rebuilt. And the Christian life is a remodel project, isn't it? In the Greek language, this word translated build up is the Greek word oikodome. And it literally means to build a dwelling, to build a house. The Bible teaches that, that each of us individually is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's that place uh, to which Jesus seeks entry in the book of Revelation when he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him, an expression of great intimacy, and he with me. Paul said elsewhere that we're being built into a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. So we might understand what Paul is saying here in verse 2 of Romans 15 this way. To build someone up is to assist him or her to do what is necessary to become a better dwelling place for the Spirit of God in which the Spirit can live in greater fullness. Does that make sense? Just nod your head. If you don't nod your head, as Evan always says, there's coffee at the back. The true church of Jesus Christ is an upbuilding church. It's a place where lives are restored. It's a place where people are built up to spiritual maturity. By the way, we're going to follow this series in Romans with a series on the kind of church we need to be for the next chapter. I hope you'll be here for that. One of the underlying premises in chapters 14 and 15 is that a weak conscience is also an uneducated conscience. 
So as a Christ follower grows in their knowledge uh, and understanding of the will of God for them as it is expressed in the Bible, as they choose to obey that, they'll be built up, they'll become strong and mature. Well, okay. But why? Why should we do that? Why should we please our neighbor and not ourselves? Why should we bear with their failings? Why should we build them up? And Paul's answer is because Christ did not please himself. You might remember in his letter to the church in the city of Philippi, Paul urged them, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't cling to that. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. Even from there, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the most lowly of deaths, the death on a cross. So here in Romans 15.3, Paul wrote, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. The insults of those who insulted you, Father God, fell on me. And Paul's quoting from Psalm 69.9 to say that as an example of his refusing to please or serve himself, Christ so completely identified himself with the name and the will and the cause and the glory of the Father that insults that were intended for God, insults hurled at God from both Jews and Gentiles, fell on him 700 years before Christ. The Spirit of God enabled the prophet Isaiah to see what would be true of the experience of the Christ when he came. And here's some of what he said. He, the Christ, Jesus, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 4 points back to Paul's quote from Psalm 69. Verse 9. Jesus set the example for all that Paul is talking about here. As we sang earlier, if you gladly chose surrender, So will I. So must I, if I claim to follow you. 
Verse 4, as I said, points back to Psalm 69.9, provides a helpful sidebar, though, on the, the nature and the purpose of Old Testament Scripture. And it's worth for, worthwhile for us to just kind of take a look at that sidebar for just a moment. He says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So four things, four observations uh, that Paul's really making here about the nature and purpose of Old Testament Scripture. And the first is its contemporary purpose. Its contemporary purpose for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. It was written a long time ago. It was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. It was written for our instruction. It, it was, of course, initially intended for those to whom and for whom it was written in the past. Some people ask, and I've heard this many times through the years, even from Christians, whether the Old Testament scriptures are, are really relevant in this New Testament age. Um, do we really need to even bother to read them, or do they still apply? And and I think verse 4 here of Romans 15 provides an answer. Paul was persuaded that it was written to instruct believers in every generation until Jesus comes. I mean, is it possible that you could recognize Jesus and come to faith in him strictly through the Old Testament scriptures? Paul thought it was possible. To his protege Timothy, Paul wrote that the sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And just to play the role of Captain Obvious here, just just make a note that the sacred writings that Paul was talking about are the Old Testament scriptures. That's all they had. And we commit a real error when we allow ourselves to believe that only the New Testament really speaks about Jesus. The reality is that the Old Testament is all about Jesus, from Genesis to Malachi. It's all about him. Paul told Timothy that the Old Testament scriptures are able to provide the wisdom that would lead to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. There it is. He went on in verses 16 to 17 and said, All scripture, all scripture, all of the word of God, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Second thing that Paul alludes to here is it's the comprehensive value of Scripture. And by comprehensive value, I, I simply mean that it was all written for our instruction. And for whatever was written, Paul says in former days, was written for our instruction. Whatever was written, whatever it was, All of Scripture is the Word of God. It's all applicable. Some of it's more relevant than others, but it's all God's Word. Third, it's practical purpose. For whatever is written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. God's Word brings us encouragement with a view to endurance. Any of you ever need endurance in the in, in your Christian life? Keep walking in obedience when it doesn't seem to make sense and doesn't seem to be benefiting you much? A view to endurance so that we might have hope. 
How does it do that? It, it helps us to see beyond time to eternity, doesn't it? It, it lifts our eyes beyond present temptation, present suffering, present discouragement to future glory. And fourth, it's divine message. It's divine message. Again, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And he goes on in in, uh, in verse 6, May the God of endurance and encouragement, the God of endurance and encouragement, grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've just seen that all Scripture is breathed out by God. And the writer of Hebrews began his book with the clear declaration that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. So for us today, what we need to understand is when we read the Old Testament prophets, we are hearing the voice of God. Are you aware of that as you're reading the Word of God? That it was spoken out by the Spirit of God, it was breathed out by the Spirit of God, you're hearing the voice of God. You're reading the message from God. Notice the striking fact here in Romans 15 that endurance and encouragement, which in verse 4 are attributed to Scripture, in verse 5 are attributed to God. He is the God of endurance and encouragement, which is another reminder that it is God himself, himself who is strengthening us, to endure is God himself who is encouraging us through the living voice of Scripture. Think of it this way. God continues to speak through what he has spoken. Verses 5 and 6 lead us into Paul's second major encouragement in this passage, which is that we should live in harmony each other. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the Bible, an expression that follows this general format is usually called a benediction or a blessing. The word benediction means just a good word or a good message. And Paul's prayer for the believers in Rome is that the God who is the source and the embodiment of endurance and encouragement and who is therefore the only one who really can impart it in its fullness to human beings will strengthen and encourage them first of all, first of all, first of all, to live in a high degree of harmony with one another. Work of the Holy Spirit in the church is to work harmony and unity in us. I'm going to take a little, I'm going to go off on a little tangent here for just a moment. 
the work of the Holy Spirit in your life is to create unity between yourself and the rest of the church. The Holy Spirit is the glue that holds the church together. Church can kind of be messy, can't it? <laughs> Somebody once said that church is like Noah's Ark. If, if it weren't for the storm on the outside, you couldn't handle the stench on the inside. Church can be messy. The Holy Spirit is the glue. And I often hear people say, well, I don't go to church. Nature is my church. You want to go to the Grand Canyon and worship God? Knock yourself out. Just go do that. Don't fall in, but worship God. But then realize that that God that you claim to be worshiping is the God who works unity. You belong to the church. You belong to the community of believers. You won't survive spiritually without Christian fellowship. You won't survive spiritually without life-giving, upbuilding, bearing with kind of relationships in the church. Now remember that he's been talking about relationships between the weak and the strong in faith within the Christian community. And we've seen that it seems from the examples of matters of faith that Paul has pointed to in this discussion that the strong were generally, and this is a generalization, but the strong were generally Gentile converts to Christianity with regard to this issue of matters of conscience. The weak were generally Jewish converts. So in spite of those differences and many others, he's calling for harmony and unity among and between Jewish and Gentile Christians who, as you begin to think about it, have a mountain of differences between them. This expression, live in harmony, is literally means to be of the same mind with one another. Literally to, to think and to feel the same thing among yourselves. How do you do that in a, in a group of people that are incredibly diverse? The idea captured in the phrase is difficult really to translate into English because it, it combines both the, the visceral and the cognitive aspects of thinking, of being of the same mind. We think and feel that we are one. We act accordingly. And here, right here, is authentic unity amid diversity in the church. The world talks about diversity. They just don't, they can major in diversity. They, They just can't figure out this unity thing. They don't get it. And we, we wouldn't get it if it were not for Christ. If we, we wouldn't get it if it were not for the Holy Spirit driving us together, knitting our hearts to each other, 
whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're educated or uneducated, whether you got a big bank account or, or you live in a little tiny trailer somewhere. Diversity. Whether your skin is black or white or brown or yellow or whatever color it turns. Why should we live in harmony with each other? Paul says it's because Christ welcomed you. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Remember this word welcome, we've seen it before. It means to embrace. It's not a passive word, it's an active one. It means to include. It means to take those whom Christ has welcomed, regardless of who they are, where they've come from, and welcome them into our hearts and into our lives. See, here's the heart of the gospel, isn't it? Isn't it? Everyone who transfers their trust to Jesus Christ is welcomed by him. In spite of the depth of their sin, welcomed regardless of our race, ethnicity, skin color, welcomed regardless of the size of our bank account, the extent of our education, the reach of our influence, the level of our social status. The the true church of Jesus Christ is a welcoming church. Christ has extended a welcome into the kingdom of God to us through the cross. Paul is calling us, in spite of our many differences, to embrace one another as Christ has embraced each of us individually. And when we do that, he said, God is glorified. God gets the glory. Next, we should live in harmony with each other, Paul says, because we are to worship with one voice. We are to worship with one voice. Check out verse 8 that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's poetic, but what does it actually mean? And I think it means this. First, that God desires that the voice that rises from the earth and prays to him from believers all over the world should be an undivided voice because it comes from an undivided church. It doesn't mean that, that there aren't incredible differences in the way we do church in the way we live our lives, the ways that we worship. Incredible differences. But the true church of Jesus Christ is an undivided church. Paul taught the believers in Ephesus that God's intent through the cross was to create from Jew and Gentile one new Humanity, he writes, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, you Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, 
and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. One new humanity. And secondly, I believe that the one voice means that our corporate expressions here of worship will be undivided. That's the essence of what's being expressed when when we participate together in communion. The Lord's table. We symbolically drink from one cup. We symbolically drink from one loaf because we are one undivided church serving one crucified and resurrected Savior and Lord. Paul taught the Corinthian believers that when we participate in communion, while knowing that we are in practical disunity, we are in unreconciled relationships with other believers, then at that moment we are eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. Eating and drinking judgment, Paul says. On ourselves. Next, we should live in harmony with each other because Christ became a servant to both Jews and Gentiles. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. We might say more accurately that Christ became a servant to the Jews for the sake of the Gentiles. It says he became a servant, first of all, to the circumcised, that is the Jews. Why? In order to demonstrate God's truthfulness, to confirm God's covenant faithfulness to all his promises. And the one promise that stands tall among all of the promises to the patriarchs is God's promise to Abraham that in your seed, Abraham, in one special descendant of yours shall all of the nations be blessed. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that promise. Second, Christ became a servant to the, uh, to the Jews for the sake of the Gentiles in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. That is, that they may come to faith in Christ, that they may be reconciled to God, become worshipers of the one true God. And in verses 9 to 12, in order to remind his readers that this has been God's intent all along, Paul quotes four Old Testament sources that show the Gentiles worshiping the God of Israel, hoping in the Christ, the root of Jesse. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. Sing praises to your name, Second Samuel 22.50, Psalm 18.49. Then in Deuteronomy 32.43, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Psalm 117.1, Praise the Lord, all nations. That word there is the word goyim, which is translated Gentiles. Extol him, all peoples, all nations, all, all people groups. And again, Isaiah 11.1 says, The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. See, the references to hope in verses 4 and 12 then lead to Paul's second benediction in verse 13. May the God of hope, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Hope. 
First, he's the God of endurance and encouragement. Now Paul presents God as the God of hope. It's a prayer for hope directed to the God of hope. Today we live in a world of hopelessness, don't we? Many people today wonder if there's hope for the world. One representative in Washington says we're only going to be around for another 12 years. Hope for the world. Hope for our nation. It's kind of serious. I mean, it's laughable, isn't it? But, but it's kind of serious because here, here a whole generation of young people are believing. You only have 12 years left. That's hopelessness. People wonder if there's hope for our nation. Certainly in, in, in these weeks, we're, we're aware of that. Hope for our personal future. Hope for our marriages and families. Hope for eternity. Notice where Paul says that hope begins. And don't miss this. He says that hope is in what? In believing. It's in believing. It comes to us as we trust in Christ. And God provides us with joy and peace. And that results in an overflow of hope. Because he alone holds the future. And our confidence rests securely in him. He never fails. Joy and peace are the possession of those whose hope is in God. It's given as a gift to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Need hope today? Let me introduce you to Jesus. Let me introduce you to Jesus. Trust in him. I don't know what the future holds. I know who holds the future. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this word from you. Pray that it would sink in, that we would reflect, that we would meditate, that we would inquire of you how you would have us respond. Lord, will you work love among us, that those who are strong would willingly, gladly bear the failings of the weak, that those who are strong would assume the responsibility to build up the entire church, that we would live in harmony with one another so that the world looking on would know that we are your disciples, that you, Father, sent your Son, and that he is our Savior. He is our hope. We pray these things in his amazing name. Amen.